Well, uh, y'all talked for years about the preacher's kids. Uh, now you get to talk about the preacher's grandkids, all right? <laughs> what a scene up here. That was beautiful. So thankful you're here. I don't know how I don't blow a service after that. Uh, I think the safest thing we can do is go straight to God's Word. So would you stand out of reverence from God's Word? And let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is everything we're talking about doing today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down... And when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. When the Lord our God, your God, brings you into land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. A land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves. You did not plant. Then you will eat and are satisfied. Listen to this last line in particular. And be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may be seated. You see, in the, in the context here of giving all these ways in which we impart our faith to our children, to our grandchildren, he, he, the context of it is this grand story of God delivering them out of Egypt. And the point I want to make this morning is the power of a story. And first of all, we understand the power of a story with children. Even just out in the world, if we want to teach our children not to lie, we tell them the story of the boy who cried wolf. He's a boy keeping sheep. He's get bored, and so he decides to produce some activity, so he starts crying wolf when there is no wolf. And finally, everybody's in on it. There is a wolf, and he cries wolf, and nobody goes. And so that story is the best way to teach that when you're a liar, people don't believe you even when you tell the truth. And when we get to God's holy Bible, we still are telling stories. I love what Hannah and Sharon say to every teacher in our kids' kingdom. We want you to teach the story of Jesus with incite, excitement and wonder. That's the way we pass our faith on. I was talking to some of my grandchildren just the other day. We were eating lunch, and I started asking them questions about the Bible. They could recite a few memory verses, but when they really lit up and they really could tell me is when I asked them, what's your favorite story in the Bible? You see, stories give emotions to facts, and so we remember stories. And guys, the same is true with us as adults. Stories are powerful. You need to recognize that... Um, in the majority of history, the vast majority of people did not know how to read. And so truth was told by stories, oral tradition, from generation to generation. In the Jewish faith, the most powerful moment was the Passover. And in the Passover, the women would light all the candles in the house, symbolizing that the Son of God would come through a woman. And then the children would ask the dad, what makes this day different than every other day? And then the dad would have the opportunity to tell the story of the slavery and the deliverance of God. It kept the faith alive. 
I like what Andrew Peterson, the Christian musician, says. If you want someone to hear the truth, tell them the truth. If you want someone to love the truth, you should tell them the story. You see, guys, if we want to teach truth, we tell stories. If I wanted to teach you about grace today, I could give you some great definitions of grace. The most popular probably is unmerited favor. That's good. Uh, I, I could even give you an acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that. My favorite definition would be, though, grace is getting what you need and not what you deserve. But if I really wanted you to understand grace, I would probably tell you this story. There was a dad who had two sons. And the younger son was rather rebellious and tired of living at home with all the rules. And so he went to his dad and said, Dad, would you go ahead and give me my inheritance now? Which in Jewish culture was as good as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me the money. And the dad surprisingly gives him the money. And the son goes out. And the Bible itself says he gave himself to wild living. He's partying it up, and he's got friends all around him. But when the money ran out, so did they. Finally, he's just trying to survive. He's working on a pig farm, a Jewish boy on a pig farm, and he's eating from the pig's food. And then finally, the scripture says, he came to his senses. He thought, maybe I don't have to live this way. Oh, I know I'm not worthy to be my my dad's son, but maybe I could go back and at least work on the farm and make minimum wage. And so he decides to head back home. And he's repeating to himself over and over again, Father, I know that I've offended you and all of heaven, but would you please let me come back and work on the farm? He's saying it over and over again. And as he gets close to the house, the father sees him from afar. And the father does something no self-respecting Jewish man would do. He ties up his robe. He runs down the road. And he embraces his son. His son begins to say, Father, I'm unworthy. I can't. And the father won't even listen to him. He says, give, give him the robe. That symbolizes the son. Give him the ring that symbolizes he's special. Give him shoes that symbolize he's not a slave. And then it says, he rejoiced because my son who was lost has come home and he threw a party. My friends, that man deserved nothing and was given everything by his father. That's grace. If this morning I was wanting to tell you, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's one of the great commandments. I could tell you those words, I could give you those commands, or I could tell you this amazing story in Scripture of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The sea elevation drops a long way. It's a long, windy, dangerous road. You really shouldn't travel it by yourself, but this man did. And on his way, he was jumped by robbers. Everything he had was stolen. He was beaten and left half dead. And then Jesus, who knew how to tell a story, says, There was this priest coming by, and um, he was scared he might get beaten, so he just sort of passes by on the other side and leaves the man dying. Then there was a Levite, and he comes by, and he's worried about being on time for church. Not that any of y'all could relate to that. I mean, he's, he's, he's worried about being on time to church, and so he passes by on the other side. And then half breed. 
rejected by anybody religious, Samaritan man comes down the road, stops and helps a man, puts oil on his wounds, bandages them, takes him to a, an inn, puts him up for a couple of days, helping him to heal. And when he leaves, he says, the innkeeper, I'll be back and charge me whatever it costs. And then Jesus says, who is the neighbor? Who loved the neighbor? That story tells us what it means to love our neighbor. You see, stories are powerful. And this morning, I want to talk about the superpower of what I'm calling today the grand story. You see, there might be other descriptions about that. We talk about, buddy, grand story. We'd call this today a meta narrative. It, it's the big, giant narrative of the way you see life unfold. Some people would call it your worldview, but it's all found in your story. Because practically, the grand story that you live into is the way that you understand life. It's the sweeping story from the beginning to the end that tells me who I am, what I'm doing here, why is this place such a mess, and where am I going? Those stories are so incredibly important. It's the glasses that you look through life at. You see, if you have glasses like on the screen and they're pink, everything's going to appear pink. If they're green, everything's going to appear green. It's like if someone, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you're wearing the glasses of an atheistic evolutionist, you would probably look at the Grand Canyon and think, wow, that's beautiful. But how many millions of years did it take water and rain and wind to do this? If you go to the Grand Canyon and you're a, a biblical believer, you may look at that and say, whoa, God, you're amazing. And you might think, was the flood a part of this? You see, it's those glasses that tell you about life. Now, there are all kinds of grand stories out there. I'm just going to tell you about a few of them. I'm not even going to do justice to any of them. But I, I want you to see what a grand story does to you. Let's say, for instance, you were to buy into Buddhism. Buddhism basically says... The best way to deal with life is to withdraw yourself from life. If you stay engaged in life, you're probably going to get hurt. So the more that you can bring yourself away from life, the better you'll be. If you're talking about meditation to a Buddhist, they're not talking about meditating on the beauty of God's creation or, or on God. They're talking about meditating on nothing. So it's demonstrated in Buddha's own life. Buddha decided to so distance himself, he left his wife and children to be all by himself. And his wife and children died of starvation. That's one grand story. Others might be what we commonly would call religion. The difference in common religion and Christianity is religion tells you do. Christianity tells you it's done. Religion says everything's about what you do and how you perform. If you perform really well, you're going to be blessed. If you perform really bad, you'll be cursed. But Jesus tells a different story. John chapter 9, they bring a blind man. His disciples buy into that meta-narrative. And so they say, Jesus, here's this blind man. Who sinned? Who goofed up? Who messed this thing up? Him or his parents? And Jesus says, you don't get it. Neither one of them did. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You're not going to always see fairness and immediate results and rewards here on this earth. If you're an atheistic evolutionist, if you buy into Darwinism, it would say life is about the survival of the fittest. 
You just evolved as a nobody from some kind of crazy cosmic soup, and you've evolved to this point, and there's nothing significant and nothing important about you, and really nothing important about anybody else. And because this is just a slow evolution, there's no such thing as right or wrong. So what do you do? You step on and over anybody you've got to to get what you want. How do you end up with a Putin in this world? It's through that kind of belief system. And then there's hedonism. We don't use that word a lot, but a lot of us would live by this philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So earth becomes simply me finding pleasure. And what I try to do is just line my life up with one fun event after the other, but the problem with that is you finally wear out and they lose meaning. Or one more just to throw out there is materialism. The slogan of materialism would be this, he who dies with the most toys wins. What a lie, because when you die, the toys don't go with you. But guys, if we live in that grand story, the way you view life is the way you will live life. And that's why we're spending weeks right now as a church going over the grand story of Scripture, what I would call the Christian grand story. Here it is. It's a sweeping story that starts with creation where God creates this beautiful place, creates us as his own image. We reflect him. God's walking in closeness in the cool of the garden every day with Adam and Eve, and then there's that awful fall where they go, they, they do the one thing, the one thing God said, don't do. And it's like a nuclear explosion, and we've lived in the radiation and the fallout ever since. But even at that moment of the story, God promises through woman, through Mary, that Jesus will be born. And though Satan may nip his heel, Jesus will crush his head. And then we see the story of redemption go into place where God pursues man over and over again and finally pursues man all the way to the cross. And that's why we love that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just flip through a few screens with me. We've gone from creation to the fall to redemption. And then finally, here's where you and I live today in the grand story. We live in restoration. Now, this is one of my favorite passages because it tells what God's doing in you and I right now. Here's what Paul says. We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, every part of that story tells you something about yourself. Creation tells you that everybody on this planet is special. We value life. The fall tells us that we do live in a messed up place, and it explains the difficulty, pain, and trials of life. The redemption story tells us that God is on a rescue mission and finally, the new creation, the story of restoration says, God is doing in you everything he must do to bring us back to the beginning where we were created in the image of God. Oh, I love that one verse. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18. What does he say? How, do we, how are we transformed? 
First of all, we keep our eyes on the story. We keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And second, it's through the the very power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, there's a lot of debate that goes on out there about what the Holy Spirit does and doesn't do. But I will tell you today, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to form Christ in you. What the Holy Spirit really wants to do is he wants to make you like Jesus Christ. And he's doing that one day. And it will all come to the grand conclusion when Jesus comes back and John says in 1 John 3 verse 2, We will see Jesus face to face, and we will be just like him. My friends, that's the grand story of Christianity. And your personal power happens when your story interacts and intersects with his story. You see, what does the grand story do? What does the meta narrative do? It gives you meaning to life. If you begin to have a low self-image, and you don't think you're worth anything. The story says, no, you're created in the image of God. You're special. If life begins to be difficult from no harm of your own, you're not surprised because you understand the fall. I love that classic book, The Road Less Traveled. The first sentence is, life is difficult. The next sentence says, and the sooner you believe that, the better your life will be. We live in a fallen world. And then, as you begin to think about this beautiful love story of redemption, when you wonder if God cares about you, you understand that God pursued you all the way to the cross, that your life now has a purpose for you now to be restored into his image and to represent him on this earth. Your life has purpose. You see, when your life and his life intersect, that's where power happens. That's why We think there's power in baptism, not because we think this water is anything special, not because of the act, because it's the place Scripture says you intersect with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, where it intersects, that's where there's power. And my friends, as you think about your future, how you view your future determines how you live your present. Guys, if you think, like most grand stories are, is that eventually life's just going to end and you're dead like Rover and you're dead dead all over, what's life about? But if you know that everything in this story is leading to the restoration of paradise on earth and the restoration of you to God, then you have a purpose. And so even today, if you come in this assembly today and you're struggling with your health, or maybe some people I actually saw in first service You are face-to-face with death. You can face it because you know the story. You know the end of the story. So listen to me, my friends. Why in children's ministry, in adult ministry, in every ministry, do we tell the story over and over again? It's for all of us to overcome this lurking suspicion in our heart that all of life amounts to nothing more than just fidgeting until we die. Oh no. If you buy into this grand story, life matters. So let me finish by challenging you in this way. See, our challenge, my friend, I saw this phrase this week, I love it, is to trust the story. If you feel rejected, trust 
the story. You're made in the image of God. If life throws you a curveball and you don't understand it, trust the story. You live in a fallen world. If you contract cancer and God chooses not to heal you, trust the story that you're in a win-win situation. If you think I've done too many rotten things that God could never save me, maybe somebody else, but not me, trust the story. Jesus died for everyone. If Satan is whispering in your ear, I don't know what you've been doing. You've been trying, but you will never change. Trust the story that the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead could change you. If you are facing death, trust the story that it's not the end but the beginning. Trust the story. I got to experience that this weekend. I was in Nashville. And at one lunch I went to, there was a a leader from that covenant church where the school shooter came into their school, killed three little kids, killed three adults. And he began to tell me about the church's reaction. The Sunday after the shooting the pastor got up and said these words. We're an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And then he proclaimed, Satan picked the wrong church to attack. It was the head minister's child was one of the girls that was killed. And he stood up and preached her funeral. And he preached this little girl's place in the story. And the police chief of Nashville commented after the funeral, my faith in God has been restored. Because the only play to handle that is to believe the story. And then a few days later, that school now is not meeting in that building. They're meeting actually at the Brentwood Hills Church of Christ. And they had chapel one day. And one day, a little kindergarten girl was asked to pray. And she prayed. God, thank you when this shooter came into our church that we were not killed. And then she prayed. God, I thank you that I know my three friends who were killed by that shooter are in heaven you see that little girl was living in the story and I want to ask you this morning what story are you living in if, if you want hope if, life, if you want life to make sense I'm telling you none of the other meta narratives are going to help you if you want life to make sense you need to buy into this grand story of what God has done and where it is leading even if you're a kindergarten girl who watched your friend's shot down, it changes everything. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it could change everything in your life right now. We're about to sing a great song. And if today you need this church to pray for you, if you have been living in the wrong story, if you've bought the world's values that lead you nowhere, and you want to come and surrender your life to Jesus, you might even meet him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Or if today you need this church to say, my goodness, pray for me that I I can trust the story. I got some tough things going on right now, and I'm doubting I need to trust the story. We'll pray for you. Come right now while we stand and sing.